This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision, the show that brings you the stories behind the news headlines. Pendravirus is a little known disease. It was discovered just 17 years ago. Since then, more than 50 horses have contracted Hendrovirus. It's been passed on through infected horse tissue to seven people, four of whom have died. Bats are known to carry disease, but what scientists didn't know is they can harbour a virus which causes respiratory illness in humans. A third Queensland woman is suspected of having the new strain of lysavirus, contracted from flying foxes. Animals, humans and disease. That's the story on this Rear Vision. Around two-thirds of the infectious illnesses we humans suffer are caused by pathogens we've picked up from wild or domestic animals. They're called zoonotic diseases. And of course, the one getting all the attention at the moment is a new one, COVID-19. But these kinds of illnesses go back thousands of years, as we're about to hear. Rebecca Traub is a professor in veterinary parasitology at the University of Melbourne. The earliest evidence we have of zoonoses is what human paleontologists have shown. And this could be dating back to Neolithic periods around 8000 BC as a result of humans evolving from hunter-gatherer to more the farming situation where they're growing crops and domesticating livestock as a means of their sustenance, we start getting evidence that, yes, there is evidence here for zoonotic organisms. So, for example, we know from, as I said, human paleontologists, they have found the DNA of human tapeworms that have been acquired from eating undercooked pork meat as far as 2000 BC and as far as 7000 BC in mummified corpses from Cyprus. They also have evidence of mummified corpses with another porkborne zoonosis known as Trichinella in Spain, dating 4000 years back. And this is not just for parasites, but even for bacteria. So there was another very good example where there was a high priest and they actually found remnants of the cheese he was buried with to be positive for another bacterial zoonosis called brucella. And all of these zoonoses are still present today, but it was transmitted by drinking unpasteurized milk or close contact with animals. So the beginning of the understanding that diseases could go from animals to humans goes back a ways. David Quorman is the author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. Certainly there was suspicion as far back as the bubonic plague that this disease that was visiting itself on humans might have something to do with the rats that were also dying. The plague bacillus went from rats by way of fleas into humans. But of course, there was no real understanding of microbiology at that time. You couldn't see a bacillus, let alone a virus. You couldn't see a virus until about the 1930s. So even during the great pandemic of 1918, we knew that something was killing people and that it was a microbe of some sort, but there was no such thing as the detection of a virus. And so it was inferential that a virus was causing the great pandemic that killed upwards of 50 million people. Around in the 1930s, I think, people started working on the microbiology of some of these diseases. And there was actually a great Australian that I'm sure you know, Frank McFarlane Burnett, 
eventually a Nobel Prize winner, who started as a young man working on the disease psittacosis, otherwise known as parrot fever. And he was the one who solved the mystery of where this disease was coming to that got into people. It was caused, again, by a bacterium, but he solved the, the mystery, and it was coming from captive, I think it was budger riggers and cockatoos that uh, had been captured by a fellow for the pet trade. He got sick. His family got sick with this disease. Uh, McFarlane Burnett sorted out the fact that it was coming to him from these parrot family birds that he was capturing. How do pathogens make the leap from animals to humans? The one that most people, not here in Australia, but other countries are aware of is rabies. So that would be a direct contact or bite with the animals. If a dog bites a human or a cat, bites a human or a monkey, that's one way for the virus to be acquired. The others can arise by close contact. So this could be as simple as inhaling secretions passed by an animal. So, for example, from birds, we could get avian influenza, we could get psittacosis, we could get Q fever if we are in close contact with the bacterium that infecting placentas of livestock, for example. So inhalation is, is a major way. Ingestion of the pathogen, this is most commonly via the fecal oral route. So poor hygiene. Examples of these, of course, include things like salmonella, campylobacter, and as far as parasites go, even the hydatid tapeworm. So we can ingest eggs that are passed by the dog from hydatid tapeworms and develop a hydatid cyst. And then we could also acquire those zoonoses indirectly. So indirectly would include things like eating uncooked and unwashed produce or drinking untreated water, which has been contaminated by pathogens passed by animals. So cryptosporidium, for example, from livestock, again, salmonella, enteropathogenic E. coli. These are things that, I guess, contaminate fruit, vegetables and water supplies that are not washed or treated properly. And the big one here is also drinking unpasteurized milk. So many of the bacterial pathogens can be transmitted via this route and also ingesting unpasteurized milk products or dairy products like cheeses. Pathogens are infectious agents and they come in several forms, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi and prions. If we look back over the last century or so, viruses, especially new viruses, have become an increasing public health challenge. Yes, yes. We have antibiotics that can help us with most of the old bacterial diseases. Viruses are much more problematic. We have a drumbeat of new viruses that have been emerging from non-human animals and getting into humans over the past uh, 60 years, really, going back to one called Machupo virus in Bolivia in 1961. Machupo seems to be carried as hantavirus is carried in feces in the urine of rodents. So if rodents are moving from their wild habitats and coming in closer to humans, coming into crop fields, coming into buildings, they're urinating and they're defecating, they're shedding virus in their urine and their defecation, and that virus goes into the dust of an old building, for instance, and then a person comes along and sweeps up that building, and the dust goes into the air and the person breathes it. person can breathe in that virus and become infected with machupo or 
with uh, hantavirus of various different sorts. You have the Ebola viruses. There are a group of e viruses, all called Ebola viruses, mostly from Central Africa. And as most people know, they can be very horrible. There's a 60% case fatality rate, roughly. And those viruses are transferred primarily in bodily fluids, not through the air, not through the aerosol route. So an Ebola virus gets into a person, makes that person very, very ill. person may be bleeding. There's sweat, there's saliva, and there's a diarrhea. And so say you've got uh, a person infected in a an African clinic with Ebola and that person is having diarrhea and you've got some heroic healthcare workers who are taking care of the person, cleaning up after that person, cracked, dry hands, the virus can get into them that way. Doctors in the American city of Atlanta are claiming a breakthrough in the treatment of AIDS, heating the patient's blood to kill off the AIDS virus. The claims are being treated with caution by the medical profession. Some leading researchers believe heat causes the AIDS virus to multiply rather than die. Dutch scientists believe they've achieved a breakthrough in the war against AIDS. They say they've found a way to prevent the reproduction of the HIV virus which causes the disease. Scientists at the University of Eindhoven have spent five years researching the new technique. HIV and the disease it caused, AIDS, sounded the alarm on the risks posed by new zoonoses. Professor Eddie Holmes from Sydney University is an expert on the evolution of infectious diseases. HIV was, a, was obviously, it was and still is a huge important public health problem. We first discovered the um, disease and, and the virus in the early 1980s, but now with various techniques, we, we've kind of worked out that we think the virus most likely jumped from chimpanzees to humans in the 20th century. And HIV was really the kind of, in many ways, the, the wake-up call for understanding that viruses could jump species and infect humans. We knew that for a while before that, but HIV was really such a dramatic example, such huge consequences that it focused science in this whole idea of emerging disease, emerging viruses. We don't know exactly how it got into humans. And again, we have to kind of imagine scenarios. But the most likely scenario that I think most scientists agree on is that probably someone was hunting these things and, and butchering them. And as they were butchering the chimpanzee, they got some maybe some, because it's a bloodborne virus, some blood from the chimpanzee got into a kind of open wound on, on that person's hand or whatever. That allowed that infection to go. But that would have happened over 100 plus years ago. So again, we're kind of assuming a model for how that might happen. Do these diseases make the animals we catch them from sick as well? In many cases, they can. In many cases, the animal suffers no clinical signs whatsoever. And an example of this, again, is, is the hard-added tapeworm in dogs. So the hard-added tapeworm is a very, very tiny tapeworm called Echinococcus granulosus. It is endemic to Australia. And dogs get it by eating offal, which are infected with hydatid cysts from livestock or kangaroos. And they have absolutely no clinical signs. We have no idea if they are infected or not with this tapeworm. However, if they pass the eggs and the feces and we accidentally ingest those eggs, then there is a possibility that those tapeworms develop into larval cyst stages in our, in our bodies and cause pathology. So in some cases, no. In some cases, yes. For example, with livestock, 
we do have diseases such as brucellosis, for example. We have eradicated it, but brucellosis in Australia was present at one stage and, and it did cause abortions and sterility in animals. But again, in some animals, it was pretty asymptomatic. So it's not always obvious that an animal has a zoonosis. Generally not, no. There is this term, natural host or reservoir host, referring to the non-human animal in which a virus such as this one lives over a long period of time, inconspicuously, generally without causing symptoms, without causing mass die-offs. And how does that happen? What well, happens because there is a long evolutionary relationship. A virus that lives in bats without making the bats ill has probably been in those bats for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. So there has been a co-evolution. The virus lives there quietly, at generally at low levels of abundance. Low viremia is the term, meaning not very many virus particles flowing through the blood, making that animal sick. But the virus is just hunkering there, sort of semi-dormant. And then when it spills from that host, reservoir host, into a human, then it's a whole new a whole new game, a whole new deal. The virus now is in, a, is in a new environment, a new host, and if it's lucky, it's well adapted to that host, and it replicates rampantly, charges itself up to a very high viremia, infects cells, uh, for instance, in the respiratory tract, and gets itself coughed out and transmitted to other individuals of this new host, and then it's on its way toward being an outbreak an epidemic or a pandemic virus. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National. The connection between animals, humans and disease is what we're looking at here. In the same week that medical researchers in Malaysia have been warning of the possible spread of the deadly Nipah virus, news has come from Africa of a new epidemic of the dreaded Ebola virus. You've heard of bird flu. Now Australian scientists have uncovered a new virus that spreads from bats to humans. But unlike bird flu, it isn't fatal. 30 million people are estimated to be HIV positive, with deaths from AIDS recently overtaking tuberculosis as the world's biggest infectious disease killer. Zoonoses, the infections we pick up from animals, have been with us for thousands of years, but they've become an increasingly significant public health issue, never more so than now as we grapple with COVID-19. If we look back at some of the zoonoses that have caused epidemics and pandemics, a lot of them seem to have come from bats or rodents. Why is that? Yes, yes. Bats certainly seem to be overrepresented. Rodents are certainly represented. And birds are represented in connection with the influenzas. The influenzas all originate with wild aquatic birds. But yes, you're right, Carrie. Bats and rodents in particular. Well, for one thing, bats and rodents are very, very diverse groups of mammals. And bats account for one in every four species of mammal. 25% of all the species of mammals on Earth are species of bats. So they might seem overrepresented simply because they are overrepresented in the diversity of mammals. But there's some things beyond that, too. Bats live a long time, individual lives of up to 15, 18, even 20 years. 
And a, you know, a little mouse the size of a bat is going to live one or two years. A bat can live a long time. And they roost together, most of them, in great aggregations. I've seen groups of about 60,000 bats roosting together on the wall of a cave, you know, three or four bats deep, mothers with pups at their breasts, just all crowded together. So if they live a long time and they live very, very intimately close to one another in these great densities, then those two factors allow for a, a continual recirculation of viruses throughout the bat population. And then there's one other thing that is suspected by scientists as being important, and that is that bat immune systems seem to be downregulated. They seem to have evolved toward a greater tolerance for alien forms, alien forms of life or quasi-life, like viruses within them. Why would that happen? Well, bats are the only truly flying mammal, and that flight seems to put great stress on their physiology. And that stress on their physiology may be responsible for breaking open the bat's own cells and exposing naked DNA, not the normal proteins on the outside of a cell, but suddenly naked DNA. And if the bat's immune systems were highly attuned to anything unexpected, they could be suffering autoimmune disease all the time if their immune systems were responding to the, such naked DNA. And so there is the hypothesis that over long stretches of evolutionary time, bats have evolved toward a less responsive, less sensitive immune system, so they don't suffer autoimmune disease. And, and one side effect of that is that they might tolerate other forms of life and quasi-life in them, such as viruses. So you put all those things together, and it's probably an explanation for why bats are, in fact, overrepresented as reservoir hosts of these diseases. But of course, we shouldn't blame that on bats, and the solution is not to, to get rid of bats or to, to kill bats, but to leave bats alone. Are domestic animals, livestock, also a risk to human health? The way we farm domestic animals is an issue, yes. And when we do it in, in massive aggregations, huge chicken ranches or pig farms, massive industrial-scale pig operations, for instance, there is some opportunity for viruses not to originate with these domestic animals, but to pass through them. For instance, coming from a bat and dropping into a great piggery, a virus might be passed from one pig to another, and then that virus might infect the pig farmers and the, the pork dealers and the people who deal with the pigs. That's, in fact, the story of Nipah virus in Malaysia, a virus that we, we first learned of in 19, let's see, 98. It was falling out of uh, giant fruit bats into massive pigsties, piggeries, and uh, being transmitted from the pigs from one to another and then eventually into humans. With poultry, with birds and ducks, there is a concern because they tend to pick up influenza viruses from wild aquatic birds. Birds, for instance, that fly in and dabble in the same rice paddies that, that domestic ducks may be dabbling in. And the ducks may then pick up the virus from the water after the wild birds have defecated into it. And then those, those ducks can transfer it, in some cases, into a pig that might live in intimate contact with the duck in a little pen, for instance, under a house in a village in southeastern Asia. And from the wild bird to the duck to the pig to the human can be a route of transmission of influenza viruses. How about pets? There has been some concern with this coronavirus 
that it affected um, some tigers at the Bronx Zoo in New York. It seems that cats, all kinds of cats, all kinds of members of the, the felid family, including big wild cats such as tigers, but also domestic cats, seem to have receptors on their cells in some parts of their body, such as the respiratory tract, that make them susceptible to this particular coronavirus. And of course, um, rabies is a terrible virus. It's not transmissible from human to human, but it's certainly transmissible from animal to human. And that's why we get our dogs and our cats vaccinated against rabies. Because if a dog comes down with the rabies virus, the dog will suffer a terrible disease. The rabies virus will travel slowly through the dog's nervous system, not through its blood. That's why rabies develops so slowly. But the rabies virus has adapted to a very peculiar life history, and it moves from the nervous system into the salivary glands, and, and therefore it can be transmitted in the saliva, passed through the bite of a rabid animal. So it makes, it makes an animal ferocious. It makes an animal want to bite because the virus is telling the animal, look, bite somebody because I want to transmit in your saliva. It's a, it's a demonishly ingenious virus. For example, Campylobacter in chickens and Campylobacter in cattle is a very common bacteria that infects the gastrointestinal tract. They don't suffer necessarily, but the way that we slaughter and dress carcasses makes a difference to whether it is or isn't the problem when it comes to our kitchen. So cattle are slaughtered and dressed in a way that the risks of fecal contamination of the carcass from things like E. coli, salmonella and Campylobacter are almost of negligible risk, whereas the way that chickens are slaughtered and dressed makes especially Campylobacter quite a high risk. So it's almost accepted that all chicken carcasses have Campylobacter on them. So it's up to us as consumers to ensure that we do practice those very high standards of hygiene in the kitchen in order not to get infected. How about pets? There are many zoonotic agents, especially parasites and bacteria, that can be transmitted from dogs and cats to humans. Luckily for Australia, we don't have a major risk of this because of the fact that our dogs and cats are uh, well cared for. We live in very hygienic environments. We deworm our animals regularly. And for most of us, and this is an important one, we do feed our animals cooked or commercial diets. That's very, very, very important. The most common zoonoses we do see here in Australia is related to people feeding their animals raw meat. And that just sets them up to be asymptomatic shedders of the bacteria Campylobacter which is a zoonosis and can be transmitted to humans, especially children. So that's one that is common. Another common zoonosis here in Australia is something I've researched recently. It's one called flea-borne spotted fever, and it's caused by a bacteria called Rickettsia felis. And this bacteria uses fleas, the normal fleas you see in your dogs and cats, as vectors. And if those fleas bite, especially children, in very high numbers, those children may become sick, most commonly with just general mild flu symptoms, but there has been also some reports of children being hospitalised because of flea-borne spotted fever. So there are zoonoses here in Australia, but as I said, very 
minimal risk if the pet is well cared for and veterinary advice is followed. The risk is almost negligible to the family. Despite not being at risk from our pets, we've got plenty of zoonoses here in Australia, according to Dr Jenny Robson. She's the pathologist in charge of the Department of Microbiology at a large diagnostic testing laboratory in Brisbane. When we talk about zoonoses in Australia, if you look at the nationally notifiable zoonoses, and there's about eight of them, and I think top of the list is Q fever, but also leptospirosis, brucellosis. Others on that list are tularemia, Australian bat lysobaris, ornithosis, which is a, an infection acquired from birds, psittacosis is its other name, anthrax, and then Hendra virus. In addition to those key eight significant public health zoonoses, we do have a lot of zoonoses acquired through gastrointestinal ingestion, gastrointestinal disease. So salmonellosis would well and truly head the list, but also Campylobacter, ingesting contaminated food from animals. And then thirdly are the vector-borne diseases, Ross River, Barma Forest, but also vector-borne diseases acquired overseas, and that would include tick-borne diseases as well. But moving back to Q fever, it's an infection that's got a great Australian history in that Edward Derrick in 1937, who was a clinician in Brisbane, described a febrile illness, which he named query fever because he wasn't sure what it was, in abattoir workers, the Cannon Hill Abattoir on the Brisbane River. It was interesting that another abattoir that did not slaughter pregnant animals, there were no cases of Q fever from that group. And he injected guinea pigs with the blood of infected animals and then liaised with McFarlane Burnett in Melbourne and was then able to characterise the organism, Q fever, as a rickettsial-like organism. And I think if you look at the rates of infection, Australia has one of the highest rates of Q fever in the world. We don't have the massive epidemics that we've seen in Holland back in 2014 when there was a huge mass animal production of goats, but we see small sporadic cases Queensland and New South Wales being the two states where it's most common. The other interesting thing about Q fever, I think, from an Australian perspective, is that no other country in the world has a Q fever vaccine, but Barry Marmion, a clinician from Adelaide, developed a Q fever vaccine to be used in abattoir workers where it was first really identified, and we still use that vaccine today in at-risk groups. A vaccine for coronavirus is likely to be the only way out of this crisis. In the intense worldwide race to find a cure for the coronavirus, a cheap, widely available head lice treatment could be the key. A drug that was developed for Ebola but failed to stop that virus is showing some promise against this one. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect. A drug can block this virus. While we wait for a cure and a vaccine, it's worth considering that many of the new infectious diseases that have made headlines in recent decades, SARS, MERS, swine flu, bird flu, and now COVID-19, have been caused by viruses. Have viral zoonoses now become the greatest public health challenge? Yes, they have. With one exception, I would add, and that is that we now have a problem with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. 
some horrible strains of bacteria that are resistant against all the antibiotics that we have. But then we also have these new viruses that are being passed from wild animals, absolutely new to the human species. And for most of those, we don't yet have vaccines. There was a time, Carrie, in, in the late 60s and the early 70s, when public health people were saying, we have closed the book on infectious diseases. They thought that we had this health problem beat because we were so smart. We had antibiotics and we had vaccines and we had conquered everything, almost. We were about to eradicate smallpox. We were about to eradicate polio. They thought we were coming to the end of infectious diseases caused by bacteria and viruses. And of course, that was, that was catastrophically premature. And we have gone back into a dire era of infectious diseases. David Corman, the author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. My thanks to him and the other guests, Professor Rebecca Traub from the University of Melbourne, Professor Edward Holmes from the University of Sydney, and Dr Jenny Robson from Sullivan Nicolaides Pathology. Simon Branthwaite is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.